Hi there. This is City Book and Company, a chatty little podcast that dishes and dotes on the upstarts, icons, dreamers, and doers of Houston, the most fascinating city in America. I'm Jeff Grimion, the editor of Houston City Book Magazine and HoustonCityBook.com, and I'm your host. Today we're talking with Dan and Steve Zimmerman, father and son developers who have been major players in Montrose for many decades. Looking forward to talking with them. And in fact, we are taping today from the residences at La Column d'Or, which is a fabulous new residential tower that has been built by the Heinz Corporation in partnership with the Zimmermans behind the Zimmermans famous old boutique hotel, La Column d'Or. Before we get into that, though, I am honored to introduce my good friend, Caroline Starry. She's my co-host today. We've been friends a while. She's written for City Book over the years. Today, her day job, and impressively so, she's the Director of Development for the Southern Smoke Foundation. Welcome, Caroline, and tell us a little bit about what you've been doing at Southern Smoke. Thank you, Jeff. Couldn't be more thrilled to be here. As you know, I when you approached me about this, I said, oh my gosh, I totally know the Zimmermans from a past life in PR when we worked with them for La Column d'Or. So also, I live right down the road and have been thrilled about the progress of this development. So, of course, I was happy to see a little sneak peek of it because that's always fun. But yes, Southern Smoke Foundation. I fell sort of backward into this role during COVID when I reached out to the executive director, Catherine Lott, who I knew must be in the weeds because obviously they were suddenly slammed. Love Catherine. Catherine is one of my broads. Um, She's (laughs) intrepid to say the least. She's wonderful at the helm of Southern Smoke. So I reached out and it kind of just started as, like I said, I'll volunteer because, you know, girl, I know you need help. And then she's like, well, I can pay you and it's hourly. And then it kind of became a full-time thing. And then suddenly it was like, hey, do you want to like have a real job with us? Like, <laughs> and, <laughs> and it all happened in a pandemic. So And tell, and tell people, uh, back up a tiny bit, and tell people what Southern Smoke is and, and right. why the need was so great Correct. during the so pandemic. So Southern Smoke Foundation actually is born of the Southern Smoke Festival, which came about in 2015 when Chef Chris Shepard wanted to do something both actual and symbolic about multiple sclerosis because his dear friend and longtime sommelier and just sort of kindred spirit, Antonio Giannola, came down uh, with the diagnosis of MS. So the reason we are called Southern Smoke, even though it doesn't necessarily like draw a direct line to what we do today, is because it started as like a barbecue and smoking festival, you know, with big smokers, Aaron Franklin and the like, right? In 2017, after Hurricane Harvey, uh, the group pivoted and became a crisis relief organization for the food and beverage industry here in Houston. And so they were giving direct grants to people in need because obviously the entire city was underwater for a really long time. And it hit that industry hardest of all. Right. I mean, that industry is always sort of the hardest hit because not only is it sink or swim all the time, but... The vast majority of people working in the industry are living week to week. The other part of it is that this industry has always been sort of a safety net for the rest of society. You lose your job. What are you going to do? Okay, you know, I worked in a bar in college and now I'll go pick up some shifts because I can pay my rent, right? So what do you do when the industry that is the safety net doesn't have a safety net? And there isn't one. So at the beginning of um, 2020, This organization was a $1 million organization with two full-time employees. We now have four full-time salaried employees. We're bringing on another handful for the new year. 
at one point we had 40 hourly caseworkers. We have a sort of a shadow staff in Chicago with a an anonymous fund that came through there. And so we're, 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 we're national now and we literally are giving um, grants to as many people as we can. I think up until now it's been well over $5 million to over 4,000 people. It just, it started as a million dollar budget for the year. And now I think we're at about 12 million to fulfill what we need to do by the end of the year. And that's what, what we have collected so far. Which has helped so many people. Unfortunately, it's just a drop in the bucket. It's for, a drop in the for bucket. For what's needed. Yeah. But with you and Catherine and Chris Shepard and our good friend, Lindsey Brown, mm-hmm. you guys have done some amazing work and have touched a lot of lives. Yeah. Well, it's when you read these cases, I can't think of another word other than apocalyptic for this industry and its workers. So we're happy to be able to help, but we also are dismayed that there's no sort of more national effort to help this industry. Um, The PPP loans worked in a certain way, but I think we're now looking through audits of that nationally and realizing that a lot of those loans went to not the mom and pops, you know, and, and, and not the people who are really suffering now. And so we grant to individuals almost exclusively. And these are bartenders and waiters and cooks. Dishwashers and, and yeah, just every farmers, ranchers. I mean, it's anyone in the supply chain, really. But we have a really regimented um, three-tier system of coding every single case that comes in as an application. And they are given immediate need if they are um, deemed a red classification. That would be someone who's literally, you know, can't afford their insulin and they will die tomorrow or has a crisis pregnancy, or is living in their car, you know, that kind of level. And then, you know, it it goes down from there. And unfortunately, we've had over 30,000 applications. And we can only do what we do as quickly as we do in the manner we do it, while really vetting out these applications. So as much as we have helped so many thousands of people, we also are acutely aware of how many we haven't been able to reach because we just don't have the resources or the bandwidth. So that's it just proves. And we're the only organization who does what we do like we do it in the entire country. There's no one else. It's astonishing. Yeah. Well, thank God you're doing it. You've touched a lot of lives. Mm-hmm. Continued good luck with that. Thank you for being with us. We're going to start talking very shortly here with Steve and Dan Zimmerman, our featured guest today. Steve has been a developer, hotelier, impresario, and restaurateur focused in and around Montrose for half a century, and his son Dan has been at his side for many years now, taking the family business into the future. Very excited to talk about their current projects, their past projects, the history of Montrose, all the things that they know so well, and we will get to all of that after a very short break to hear from a much-appreciated sponsor. Caroline will be back very shortly to talk with the Zimmermans. With interest rates being as low as they are, like so many other Americans, I recently refinanced my home. I shopped around a lot of the big national mortgage companies and the big banks, and I thought I'd do myself the favor of checking out a local Houston-based company, too. I was delighted when Envoy Mortgage not only found the best deal for me, but made it all so easy. Nice Houston folks held my hand through the entire process, most of which I was able to do from my house. It was convenient because you can automatically connect your bank statements, your tax records, and your income documentation right from your phone or your tablet or your laptop. You don't have to worry all the time about how it's going as the process goes along because you get updated on each step of the process and receive video guides and helpful articles along the way. 
and it's pretty darn fast. Envoy's loan origination and underwriting is all done under one roof, which means your loan moves quickly. Envoy can help you whether you're buying a new home or refinancing. They even have special programs for first-time home buyers and veterans. Envoy Mortgage wants you to love your mortgage experience. Check them out at EnvoyMortgage.com and tell them Jeff from CityBook sent you. And now back to our show. Welcome Zimmermans to CityBook and Company. Happy to have you guys. I want to start uh, sort of right in the moment, and we'll go back and talk about some of the history. But uh, our uh, listeners will know that we are actually taping this in the new La Column Door resident. The residence is at the residences at La Column Door, which is a beautiful new residential tower just behind the uh, original La Column Door Hotel. Where are we in that process? I believe that's set to open. You guys are set to open your hotel sometime early in 2021. Obviously, this building is open already. What's this process been like, and where are we in this amazing, large-scale, expansive renovation? So the process has been ongoing for several years and the idea for several years prior to that. Um, Obviously, we've had challenges with the pandemic that have delayed construction for a number of reasons, uh, material supply chain, labor supply chain, but both buildings are coming to a close from a construction standpoint. It's very exciting. The residences at La Column d'Or uh, are being lived in. I actually moved into the building myself, which is exciting to be part of uh, the project's maiden voyage. Uh, we are still, however, under construction on, on higher floors. And then, of course, with the uh, hotel, La Column d'Or Mansion, uh, tower suites and bungalows, we, are, we aren't going to open up until we are 100% complete with construction, which will be early 2021. Very cool. And I've read about a new restaurant. I know you guys have changed the restaurant in the, in the hotel over the years. It'll have a new iteration in the, in the newly renovated hotel. At, at what stage is that? And can you tell people a little bit about, about that concept? Yeah, the concept is developed. The name of the restaurant is Tonight and Tomorrow. The chef is Jonathan Wicks. Uh, we're very excited about the team we've put together. And the idea um, for the restaurant is to maintain the history that La Column d'Or has had as a dining destination, but to make the restaurant much more approachable and the kind of place that people can come multiple times a week, every day, hence the name Tonight and Tomorrow. How'd you come up with that name? Actually, I was reading um, an old is a, a, a newspaper from Jerusalem, and it was talking about some of the history, and they happened to mention about it just had the phrase tonight and tomorrow, and I said, you know, that's sort of interesting that you can really have some fun with what's going on tonight and what's going to happen tomorrow, and we were trying to come up with something that wasn't like French because for all the years we've always had a French name. And we want to keep our tradition, but we also want to let folks know that a lot of new things, young things, because it's the younger generation that are going to be in charge. And so it just seemed like a lot of fun. You could just have a lot of fun. And we're going to be open seven days a week, three meals a day. So it's a lot different than before when we were sort of a Michelin-starred French restaurant. 
How similar do you think you're going to be? Because, you know, you definitely had the French influence um, before in the salon. And then you had Pax Americana, which was far more sort of neo-American and, you know, a little bit more global. And, and that then, wasn't in the hotel. That was down the street. That was down yeah. the street. Um, but a fabulous restaurant, just one of my favorites at the time. And then Zim's Little Deck was more Gulf Coast. So, like, is this kind of similarly influenced? No, I think everything we do is influenced by us, uh, you know, individually and as as a family and things we're passionate about and places we're passionate about. I mean, obviously, the dad's from Louisiana and the rest of us are from Texas and born and raised here. So Gulf Coast seafood is a big part of everybody and every culture that you uh, will see in Houston. So I think you'll see elements of things that speak to us and things that are familiar, but it's and there will be some French influence, obviously. Le Colum d'Or is a, is a French restaurant, a French name, and the inspiration for the, the places in Saint-Paul-de-Vence. But we won't be a French restaurant, per se. And I think you'll see so many restaurants now will blend French technique with local ingredients. And, you know, for us, that includes Gulf Coast ingredients and Texas ingredients. We've got great relationships with the farmers, ranchers, fishermen, uh, etc., through the years of all the different concepts. So... It'll be exciting to kind of take the next uh, step in Le Colombor's history and bring some of those elements together. Yeah, I would. Let me just add one little thing. You know, Dan was incredibly successful with the concept of Pax Americana. So some of the best of Pax Americana, the style, the the influence, is certainly coming here. And yet we're not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. We're going to have some of the the top things that we had in the past. And then there's an opportunity for the younger generation now, Dan's group, uh, to do a lot of things that are really happening now. And uh, and then with being open for three meals a day, we really can have a, you know the best of all worlds. So that's kind of what we try, trying to blend it all together with, thank goodness, a lot more emphasis on Dan's youthfulness rather than my age. <laughs> well, you'll be, will you be, uh, is there a relationship between the residents here and the new restaurant? So the entire project is La Colombe d'Or, obviously. So residents will, will certainly have access to the restaurant, house accounts, and, and good relationship. We, we would like to offer food and beverage service. We plan to offer food and beverage service to the residents. Uh, we will be offering full room service to hotel guests. Now, what the service looks like for residents is yet to be determined, especially in the, in the COVID era. Right. So it, it probably would not be a room service traditional like you'd see in a hotel where we're bringing our china and our glassware to your room but you can expect some prepared meals or you know dinner for two pre-made like the types of things you see at heb and whole foods that you can just put in the oven and we really want to offer um, multiple ways for the residents of the tower to enjoy the column door in addition to be able to walk downstairs and walk across the hallway and be inside the column door that's part of the the uh, uh, appeal of this concept, right? You have Absolutely. the best of a, of a fabulous old boutique hotel and also the best of a very modern residential tower. Yeah, and for instance, you'll be able to order uh, food and beverage by the swimming pool, and that's an unprecedented level of service in the multifamily arena. I mean, there are beautiful buildings in Houston. There are a lot of great multifamily developers, but there's nowhere you can order a club sandwich and a, and a margarita by the pool. Right. And now you can yeah, I, I saw some beautiful grounds from the street back there, and I wondered if there had been a water feature put in. That's exciting. So we have a water feature in our outdoor dining patio. We have a fireplace in our outdoor bar patio. 
And then we have uh, another third park that's private for residences and hotel guests on the project also. So really a huge emphasis on outdoor space. You know, a lot of developers like to max the site and they max out the site and build on every square inch of real estate that they paid a lot of money to buy. Mm-hmm. But we kind of took an opposite and uh, reductive approach to make sure that we kept a lot of green space. And there's these beautiful little hidden patios and meandering pathways landscape throughout the project. So lots of little surprises. And of course, we're going to have artwork, which is in our DNA, both for the restaurant, the hotel, and the residences. As I'm sure you saw the giant Black Lorette mural on the front. Of course, yes. So there will be uh, obviously obvious art like that, and then a lot of little surprises in, in gardens and sculptures and Are you curating that yourselves, or is that something that you're kind of working with local galleries? Is it local? Is it international? Is it it's all driven, of the above? It's driven by Dad and I. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, we have consultants and um, Weingarten Group is helping us, uh, is helping the residences with the large mural implementation and other pieces of the art program. The interior designers have some some input on the Mm -hmm. art, obviously. And the one thing that everybody on the team really loves art and understands how big a part of this project art is in every aspect. So you're not going to see decorative art. You're not going to see stuff that'll just fill up walls because there's a blank wall. It's all original works and done with great purpose. Yeah, the majority, really, especially the sculptures, are things that we've collected over the last 40 years. You know, we have a place in France. We've got to know a lot of different sculptors. We've brought pieces over. And it's always been a gallery space in the Column d'Or. Right. Yeah. And so we just have, we, and I must give a lot of credit to Jerry Hines and Barbara Hines, too, because Barbara's an artist. And Jerry, uh, when we got together with, with Jerry, Barbara, Dan, you know, we all sat together. The, the, the marriage of the art to be part of the art community because the Museum of Fine Arts, Contemporary Arts. And so I would say the majority that's going to be in the tower, certainly you know in, in all three areas, the bungalows and the mansion itself, are really primarily our collection. Uh, but our hope is that we really become part of the whole, this, this whole art area. And the people, when they go to museums and the artists who come to the museums will stay with us and be part of this. And uh, so there's a, a tremendous desire to marry old and new and modern art and some of the older art and, and have it all be uh, the jus de vie of life. So that brings uh, uh, our listeners up to date, and we'll probably spend a little more time later talking about what's current, but I don't want to get too far without talking about some of what I love about what you guys are, and that's your history. For people who may not be familiar, what's the history of La Column d'Or? What, what, what was the building originally, and how did you repurpose it, and how did that all come about? Well, I'll start, I'll start on that because Dan wasn't born. <laughs> uh, basically, uh, I fell in love with a wonderful small auberge in the south of France in the village of St. Paul de Vence. And I went there the first time in 1967. What were you doing at that time in your life? I was, a, I was a, actually a lawyer and a professor at the University of St. Thomas. And uh, Mrs. Demonil was there. My office was in the same building with hers. And she was having, um, you know, she was bringing people like Andy Warhol and Max Ernst to Houston. And I didn't know anything about art. Uh, if it wasn't painted on black velvet and come from Tijuana, it was not <laughs> But I didn't want to completely be a dum-dum when we were invited to some of these parties for the art. So I started sitting in on classes at the University of St. Thomas, got to know the artists, Mrs. Demonil's um, 
friends who were artists and so on. And so, and, and then having seen this, this famous auberge in St. Paul, which was a hangout for young artists in the 20s and 30s who couldn't afford to stay, and they've traded paintings. And so all the, uh, the artwork on the walls at the original Column d'Or were the unknown artists, Picasso, Leger, Brock, Modigliani, and so on. That's one So that kind of gave me the inspiration when I bought the, the property. And to sort of put it together, I was buying some old homes around St. Thomas because I was a professor there. And uh, back then, you know, I, ta- I started the pre-law department and I taught political science. But I would buy some old homes that the, the university didn't want. And back then, you could buy a home for $10,000 and you know $500 down, paint them, fix them up. And I kind of got known for buying some old homes. And then I was approached very confidentially about buying an old home on Montrose, which turned out to be the Fondren Mansion, uh, which was originally the home of of Ella and Walter Fondren of uh, Exxon fame. And uh, and considered to be founding fathers, you know, founding yes. father of the city. Yeah, and so philanthropic, and their names are on... Uh, and it was very interesting because they told me, you probably can't do anything with the old house, but, you know, we know that you, you buy some old property, and if you're interested, we'll sell it to you for just land value, uh, and we'll actually give you enough money if you have to knock the old house down, we'll give you the money to knock it down. <laughs> But there's kind of a, there's only there's, there's only one stipulation. Um, you, this was 1977 when it first saw it. You can't let anybody know you're buying it. Uh, and you Who are you buying it from? The grandchildren of the Fondrens. But they said you can't let anybody know that you're buying it, and you can't take possession for another year and a half until '79. And I said that's the craziest thing I've ever heard of. Well, I can't tell anybody. Nope. I said, how come? Well, Grandma is still alive. She's 102 years old, 102, and lives in the Fondren Wing of Methodist Hospital. And we don't want Grandma to know that the, the old homestead is being sold, and it might even be torn down. So I said, okay, that's fine. I didn't have to pay for it for another year or so, and figured I'd decide what I wanted to do by then. So that's kind of how it, how it came about. And then with my mentally, when I got into the house and saw Everything. It was used for 30 years by the Red Cross. And when we started taking down the two products that they discovered, Armstrong ceiling tile and Armstrong linoleum, we found all this beautiful stuff. And then with my New Orleans background, I didn't have the heart to tear the house down. And the, the, the concept of the column door and the art community and so on all came about. Did you, did you want to be in the hotel business? I had no idea about what the hotel I was a lawyer for some different restaurants and hotels. I was a lawyer for uh, Brennan's, the old Shamrock, uh, the Red Lion. And uh, I had opened up Zim's, which was the first sidewalk cafe, wine bar. And it just seemed like kind of a, a, a sort of a fun project. I loved the Column d'Or in the south of France, and I figured, let's give it a whirl. If it works, great. I didn't have the heart to tear the house down. And if it doesn't, I can still do something else with the property. Uh, but I certainly didn't plan on being making a career out of being a hotelier. Wild. You mentioned New Orleans. Um, what brought you from New Orleans to Houston in the first place? Um, my dad and mom moved here in 1961. Um, we we had moved down originally from from New York when I was just a young, about eight nine years old, and my dad was in the clothing business. And the first job he had, the guy who gave him his very first job during the Depression, had two 
clothing stores on Main Street and asked if he would come over to Houston and manage them. So he came over here, mom and dad came over, moved here with my sister, and I was just starting law school, so I stayed in New Orleans. And so then that became sort of dual. In fact, my law degree was both in, in Louisiana and Texas, but that's what sort of brought me to Houston. They came in 61, and then I came here in 64 after law school. And did you, did you live in Montrose initially? Uh, the, no, I lived at home. I couldn't afford to pay rent. Uh, but then my first apartment was over on Cummins Lane. But the first, I fell in love with the Montrose area because it was the only area that reminded me a little bit of New Orleans that had sort of a people feel, St. Thomas and Rice and the museum. So then I, the first, as soon as I could afford to, um, I moved into the Montrose area and just fell in love with it. And basically, it was kind of fascinating because I, I, I drew a circle around all the things that wouldn't move. And the Museum of Fine Arts wouldn't move, Rice wouldn't move, St. Thomas, downtown. And right in the middle was Montrose, and it just seemed more like a people area. So it's interesting. You, you chose the area because it, you, there were these sort of anchors that you knew wouldn't change. But boy, howdy, has Montrose changed, I would have to say, over since the 70s. Give people a flavor of that. What was it like in those days, and, and how have you watched it change? Well, the first thing was the price of the <laughs> land. Uh, I bought my first piece of land for 50 cents a square foot, and when it went to a dollar a square foot, I wanted to know what they were smoking. You want $5,000 for a lousy lot in Montrose? But it was uh, a little bit bohemian. Uh, it had a lot of the art, sort of artists, struggling artists, the local ones who became quite well-known after a while, the Earl Staley's and the Jack Boynton's and so on. And... Uh, it was it was just interesting. It was a homogeneous area. They were very happy to have mixed races. They were happy with gay community, with art community, and so it was just a. It just reminded me an awful lot of New Orleans and the openness, and and it just seemed like a fascinating place. And it was about the only place you could kind of walk around and do some stuff, and you didn't have to be in a car all the time. And so it's just changed tremendously, dramatically. Uh, for the good. I, but I do think it's still probably one of the most significant urban areas, certainly in the city and maybe in the country, because it's so diverse and, and unique. Well, I guess a lot of criticism, and Dan, you may have some thoughts on this kind of older generation, younger generation, but um, quite a lot written about the evolution of Montrose, gentrification, questions about is it is it good? Is it losing something as it gentrifies? You guys have been on the leading edge of, of improving and, and, and redeveloping. And most of us think of that as a pretty good thing, but there's sometimes some criticism about you're losing some of the history. And how do you feel about all that? Well, I think any time gentrification occurs, you will have people complaining about it. Uh, obviously, the price of real estate goes up in a, in a city that's succeeding, and the price of real estate goes up in a neighborhood that's succeeding. Um, I think we could have a, a whole separate podcast about about this and what happens to the neighborhood. And I think for us, um, obviously, we are we're developers and we're proponents of progress. And personally, I'm a proponent of density. But I think you can develop responsibly. And you look at what we're doing with Column Door. There's no doubt that we tore an old building down, several old buildings down, to build this high rise and partner with Heinz, which is clearly a, a brand new development. But we've also painstakingly restored and preserved an original mansion of Montrose. It was built in 1923 when this was a suburban, subdivided community out in the country. And 
and it will it will last for another 150 years. So I think you can you can be respectful of the fact that some people are going to be priced out of the neighborhood and certain things will change and certain elements of it. But it's also it's progress, it's growth. And you need to respect history, but you can't be imprisoned by it. And I think there's still many places in Montrose that um, people can afford to live and, and make Montrose what it is. So it's not been completely bulldozed and turned into a brand new neighborhood. I'm going to give you a few little vignettes just because, Dan, once again, Dan wasn't born at the time. But where this actually sits right now, uh, people said, oh, you, you remove the ballroom and you build a high-rise. That's one of my questions, but is what happened the, in the ballroom. That was the, the ballroom was really new history. The ballroom was was brought over here and built. We, we established it in 95. But where this sits right now was actually William, Marsh's, William Marsh Rice's stables. This land belonged to to William Marsh Rice. Who's that? Uh, oh, Rice, the, the, the Rice guy, the, the guy from Rice University. Yeah, these were his stables. Stables. And, yeah, and across the street, where I built the first townhouses in Montrose in in 1972, they were the first townhouses with pools in the back and so on. Uh, that was the old priest house. The University of St. Thomas, when they opened in the 40s, had an old house, and that was the priest house. That couldn't be saved, and that's where I built the first seven townhouses right across the street. So we've really been involved. So you've developed a, a, sort of the whole square block and then some. Yeah. In fact, I wish I kept everything. I would have had two blocks if I didn't sell some of the properties. But And the other thing, I, I must say that Dan has inherited... Um, I'm very proud of what he's done because this project wouldn't have happened without him um, and, and his vision and, and, and understanding. But also, the, the, he's, I think I've infected him with some of saving older properties because he did the whole 100 block of Main Street. So, you know, we, we are very aware and conscious of trying to save, take the best of the old. And yet, if we do something new and modern, to, to tie it into where it's meaningful and not just another uh, copycat of something to make a few dollars. So going back to the panels real quick, the ballroom. I remember hearing this story about you all sourcing these panels from the French countryside or some, you know, some chateau and bringing them all the way over here and installing them. So what happened to them when you were going to demolish that building? Did they go with it or did you sell because them? Because we're, we're literally on top of we're, where that was. We're right on the now. grave yes. of the ballroom. But, but like... The ballroom was... Well, first of all, it was Mr. Meekham Sr. who, after the war, went over to France and bought all kinds of... a, a whole metro station and, and the staircase from the Rothschilds and this paneling that belonged to a... a, a Meekham being another founding father of the city. Yeah, John Meekham Sr. And uh, so this was, and I was friends with John Meekham Jr. And so this, the way this sort of came about was I needed to, I said, I need a ballroom. He said, what kind of ballroom? And I said, I don't know, every hotel has a ballroom. He said, well, there's some old ballroom down there in, in Hitchcock, Texas. My dad brought all kinds of stuff. And if you can figure out how to put it back together again, I'll make you deal on it. So that was sort of how that happened. And it turned out that... The librarian at St. Thomas, when I first started, ended up at the Vatican, and he used to say, everybody needs a librarian. I said, Bill, when I got out of law school, I don't need a librarian anymore. Well, sure enough, nobody knew who this paneling belonged to or what it was, and so I called Bill, and on the back of one of the panels was a name Grafuel, and Bill did the research, and it turned out that it was a countess, the whole family. I went over to France, found the history, and that's how that 
came about. But the when we we certainly took it down painstakingly, the same the, the carpenters who helped Mr. Meekum, the grandson put it back here for us when it was on this property. And just so people have a real clear idea what we're talking about. Basically, you have this ballroom that you built, and you added the ballroom on to, to what would have been the, the boutique hotel, which was the old mansion. You, you have under, uh, an understanding that every hotel needs a ballroom, exactly. so you build ballroom space, but not just any ballroom space. The whole panel, the whole inside of it is basically, after a stay over in some storage facility in Hitchcock, Texas, was a, was a piece of history in France, like the, a beautiful old panel ballroom, and you basically move all of that into Montrose, Houston, Texas, right, USA. Exactly. Oh, the, the New York Times said, you know, they, they, they couldn't believe it because it was one of the most important pieces of Regence architecture. And of course, the bankers want to try. It, it, it dates to what time period? Uh, the, the the late 1700s. Well, I think the ballroom itself was carved in 1715 to 1730, and then it was in France. It was installed in the late 1700s by this Countess Grafuel, and then it was brought over by Mr. Meekum around the late 50s, early 60s, and sat in storage. But uh, So it was kind of fascinating. The bankers said, you must be smoking something. You must be going nuts. You want to put a, 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 a ballroom that's 300 years old behind a five-room hotel. <laughs> but it turned out to be one of these sort of serendipitous kind of fun projects. And I think the more they said you couldn't do it, the more it became sort of a challenge. Well, and then 10,000 weddings happened there. I mean, I went to at least 100 of them, you know. Yeah. It was just, it was a it was a major event venue. Yeah, well, we took it down piece by piece by piece. It's still in storage, and uh, it's it's going to still be here in Houston at uh, uh, Houston Oaks. They're going the clubs to clubs at Houston Oaks. Oh, And it's going to be wonderful. put back again under the La Column door. I mean, mm. we don't own it, but it's going to be put back on their facility on those grounds. So I noticed my electricity bill was getting out of hand. It was time to do that thing all we Houstonians have to do from time to time. You know what I mean. You have to go through the hassle of switching to a new provider to get a better deal. And then over time, the prices creep up on you again after the contract period ends. And then you have to do the whole thing over again, all over again, sometime later. It's maddening. Thank goodness a friend told me about Real Simple Energy. This is a new company, Houston-based, started by two friendly local young professionals, Trent and Paul. They're both around 40. And what they do is find you the cheapest deals, the cheapest deals for you. They present you three options, one of which will always be green if that's important to you. You pick, and they handle the busy work of getting you switched over. You will save a ton of cash. Most folks save around 500 bucks a year. I actually think I'm going to save a little bit more than that. And the best part, when your contract ends and your prices start sneaking up on you, they get more cheap options in front of you again and do the whole process again and take care of you getting switched over the whole nine yards. Nobody else does what they do. You will never pay for electricity again, never hassle with providers, only deal with Real Simple. Set it and forget it. Never worry about this stuff again and have peace of mind. Don't let the big providers take advantage of you anymore. Sign up and start saving today at realsimpleenergy.com. And if you use promo code CityBook, you'll get an additional 50 bucks off your first bill. Caroline, you, you told us a little bit earlier before we started taping, I think you went on your first date ever in Houston. Was that, was that <laughs> yes, Zim's? At Zim's. 
I, uh, yeah, I moved to Houston 20 years ago this last summer in the summer of 2000. And, um, I'd been to Houston plenty of times and been out and about in Houston plenty of times, but this was when I moved here. And so I move into the neighborhood because I had a cool friend who said you should live in Montra. You check that out. Cause I didn't know Houston much. And so, um, I'm driving around and I see this really cool kind of out of place because it looks like you said a neighborhood where you can like actually like New Orleans, you know, like it, it had that vibe and I thought Zim's, Oh, that looks neat. And so, yeah, I was dating this boy and we went out for dinner and a drink and went there and I didn't live too terribly far from there. And I just was instantly charmed. That's when it still had the decor that was sort of like animals and they, like, I, I recall like a giraffe, maybe, I don't know, with, like these yeah. wildly painted walls and um and so we go there and i have some sort of you know 2000 era martini you know because sex in the city and all that was good and i was 23 and i just think well i'm i'm this is my bar now i'm going here every night this is going to be my scene and that night it burned oh. <laughs> it, it didn't burn to the ground but there was like a massive and I saw it on the news and I thought, well, is this a sign? Like, should I not live here? Because I found a place and it burned to the ground. But anyway, yes, that was the story I was telling about Zim's, which I still miss as a bar. Like, just, you know, such well, a great little a, spot. It had a good solid run from 73 until just a few years ago. Yeah. And actually, uh, uh, my wife, Becky, dance mom, she kind of took it over and she was the one who was really into design and stuff and put all of the... The tigers and lions and all that mm -hmm. kind of stuff. Yeah. And I can assure you, you will not be without a, a watering hole and a beautiful place to drink because the bar in the new Le Colombe d'Or Hotel is going to be an amazing bar. I'm super excited. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be a beautiful, beautiful place to come and have a proper drink. A lot more to come with Steve and Dan Zimmerman. Check us out next week with a new episode. We'll be talking about Madonna, the history of Montrose, and some of the crazy things that happen when you run a hotel in Houston. CityBook and Company is a production of CityBook Media and Milieu Media Group. This episode was produced, edited, and mixed by Luke Brauner. The music you've heard in this episode was licensed from Blue Dot Sessions. Artwork is designed by Patrick McGee. You'll find links to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter in the show notes. Visit HoustonCityBook.com for the latest news and notes on the most fascinating city in America.